basically the perfect combination of combining my two passions for science and fashion. Nothing is unlimited. It's the second most polluting industry in the world. Putting it in your face and saying this is trash, but what is trash? This is Bailey Willette, and you're listening to State of the Pod, and today we're talking about ho pollution. For this podcast, I interviewed four Cornell students, each with unique insights into the fashion industry's pollution problem. From the fibers to the corporate structure, let's dive into what makes the clothes we wear into such a global concern. Allow me to introduce Hansika Ayer, a senior fiber science major and CFC designer whose designs were filled with movement, yet she constructed them entirely of scrap fabric. So I personally believe that design is very scientific because I think at the core of it, fashion design, you're taking a 2D material of fabric and putting it, converting it into a 3D form. It's really mathematical. It's a lot of little... It's very, I think, technical. It's very scientific. I think for me, especially maybe because I am a scientist, I think about everything super mathematically. I'm thinking, all right, how if I cut this down by this many centimeters, then I can adjust this by this much or, oh, this is too big. I need to, you know, take it up in the shoulders or something like that. Those kinds of things I think are very scientific problem solving of It's very similar to a scientific research process where you have your pattern and that's your hypothesis and you cut it out and make it into a muslin and that's your rough draft or that's your first chest and then you do it as like a control and then you do it again in your final fabric. I think there's a lot of debates and I'm I'm actually writing a paper about this on the difference between unnatural versus synthetic fibers, um, specifically as they pertain to animal fibers. So I was raised vegetarian by my family and um, kind of more for religious reasons. So I was very anti-fur, don't really use a lot of leather or anything. And then over time, I kind of realized that, well, if we're not using these animal materials, even like wool or silk, you're using typically synthetic materials like polyester or acrylic, which are made out of fossil fuels. They don't biodegrade naturally. And they, even if they do degrade, they tend to form microplastics that pollute our oceans um, and cause just a lot more harm to the environment. And I think being someone who is very pro or very anti, you know, using animal goods and, you know, tried to be very responsible about that, I kind of realized that, well, actually, maybe the other side of the argument. So I think from a material standpoint, there's no one material that's really sustainable because even if you're thinking, okay, I'm just going to wear organic cotton, um, cotton uses a ton of water, mm-hmm. ton of pesticides, ton of land. Um, you could say you're going to use bamboo fiber, but that's probably going to be grown in China and has to come a very long distance to make it to you. So everything has its pros and cons, and it's just a matter of minimizing the harm created by them. How do you see hemp fiber being incorporated? Um, I think it's got a lot of great potential. I do think, again, um, it isn't a material that's probably going to appeal to a lot of people as far as the functionality of it, especially now that we live in an age where you're really used to wearing everything with a little bit of stretch, um, nylon leggings every day, um, stretch t-shirts that are made out of polyester because they feel more comfortable than wearing a cotton uh, t-shirt that's going to kind of make you sweat. 
Um, hemp is really similar to cotton in that sense, that it's made out of cellulose. It's, um, and it has similar properties. So I think from, from an aesthetic standpoint, I definitely think it's got a lot of potential. I think from a functionality, um, we do need to look at how to, I guess, optimize it and really brand it so that people are willing to pick a sustainable material, but definitely a lot of potential. So you're speaking, you talked about the kind of stretch that we now have mm-hmm. in our, pretty much our everyday life. We think about leggings, we think about athleisure mm-hmm. as now a new area of fashion. Is there any way that we can make these stretchy fabrics from a natural source or is it all something we've synthetically derived? So the biggest problem with stretch is actually the spandex lycra fiber that's in it. And it's polyurethane, which is a... It's meant primarily a polyurethane. And the reason that the, I can go into like the molecular science I of would this. love it. <laughs> um, so the reason that it's so awesome is because it's got these segments along the polymer chain that basically have this extreme, so there's really weak segments that basically have this extreme recovery. Um, so it's kind of like a really, really crumpled up piece of thread that you can pull apart. And then if you clo- if you lift it up, it'll snap right back. So... It's really cool, kind of like a like a slinky or something like that. And basically, they incorporate it in clothing for about, you know, like 5 to 15% of a pair of leggings or something like that. And what it does is it's usually paired with something like nylon or polyester, sometimes even wool or cotton. Um, but typically, if you're making um, leggings, so like Lululemon's leggings are made out of, I think, 85% nylon and then 15% spandex. What you're getting is you're getting all the benefits of the stretch while still getting a really strong material that's going to keep its shape. That's not going to do that thing where if you wear like a pair of like leggings that aren't so great, they kind of like bag around your like uh, your knees and things like that. It's not going to do that. It's going to keep its properties. So the biggest problem with it is that it's a non it's a thermoset and it doesn't melt. Mm. So you can't melt the fiber. With polyester, what people have been able to do is if you have a 100% polyester t-shirt, you can pretty much just melt it down and make a new t-shirt. Um, and they've optimized the procedures for that. That's how you're getting a lot of those you know, shirts and clothes made out of recycled plastic bottles. They're just able to melt it down and spin into a fiber. Polyurethane doesn't do that. So there's kind of this epidemic going on right now where everyone's trying to recollect clothing and recycle it, but they just don't know how to get the stretch fiber out. And it's blended in and I guess the main problem isn't necessarily what fiber it's paired with but it's if you're getting something that's stretchy it's going to have this material there's a few startups that have kind of figured out ways but they're still really expensive they're still not that scalable of basically being able to separate out this fiber recycle it and then put it back into clothing wow I had no idea like I think I think that's something that on general, a lot of the public doesn't know of like we can recycle a lot of polyester things, but when we have those blends of materials, how do we realistically take them into something new?
you mentioned microplastics. Yes. Do you want to go into a little bit more detail about how polyester goes through being a shirt in your closet to microplastic? Where does that yes. fall? Polyester is a polymer, polyethylene therapeutic. So it's made out of chains of molecules that are basically compacted together in like a fiber. And when you material is subjected to abrasion in the form of throwing it away, rubbing it against something, or putting it in a washing machine with hot water where it's going to be rubbed with other clothes, some of those molecular chains come off. And some of them are, they tend to be like bigger chains. They tend to be basically what they're called are microplastics or microfibers. And they form in a few different ways. There's still research being done on this. This is something that was only discovered, I think, 15 years ago. So it's pretty new as far as people doing research on it. When you throw away plastic, what happens is through being in the water, being with salt, being in waves, it breaks down into tiny particles that we can't see with the naked eye, but they're big enough to accumulate. And people have been finding these tiny particles in inside of fish bodies. They found them in drinking water supplies. They found them in rivers and lakes. Um, and it's kind of terrifying because if you think about it, we can't tell that they're there, but they could be in our drinking water. Another big kind of deposit where people have been finding them is through washing machines. So when you're washing clothing that has polyester in it, it's degrading into these microfibers um, and getting into the waterways. And it's kind of scary. I think we don't really know the scale of it. Um, you know, it, it is possible that it's not really that harmful, but it sounds really harmful. <laughs> it sounds so I think, I, I think it probably is pretty scary. Um, so people are really looking at ways to combat it. And we still don't know whether fashion is a big contributor. It seems like it is, but maybe it's not. And some of the ways that people have been dealing with this is there's a product called the Guppy Bag, which is a like mesh bag that you can put any of your polyester containing clothing in and wash it. So it's kind of like if you have like a delicates bag or something, it basically just collects the microplastics um, and keeps them from going into the water. Um, Some washing machine companies are kind of trying to install filters in their machines that capture these particles um, so that they can at least stop the stream before figuring out how to deal with them in ocean. I then interviewed Regina Munn, a senior fashion design major and CFC designer whose recycled collection, Full Circle, brought us to think about our waste in the fashion industry. (laughs) (laughs) So ever since I was little, like when I first learned how to dress myself, apparently I would come down in like 10 different outfits on like a casual Saturday as like a three-year-old. So I feel like I already, well, I always knew that I wanted to go into fashion. Also, my mom would always make me outfits when I was little, and then I'd ask her to like change this or that, and then so that it just like kind of came naturally. So I named the collection Full Circle. It was sort of like a last minute name, and I'm still not 100% set on it, but (laughs) I kind of wanted to like get at the sense of a closed loop production, basically, um, because all of my clothes were made from discarded clothing or like even house linens um, that I got from reuse as well as just um, fabric that I had lying around or there's a great place in Ithaca called So Green (laughs) Um, but they sell secondhand fabrics from like ladies who just want to get rid of all their sewing supplies Um, so I got a lot of my things from there 
Um, but what kind of started it was in, so I always knew that I had to do a senior collection and like I've had four years based, or three years to think about it. And I was always excited and I was like, what do I do? And then I got into sustainability and then I was like, oh, but like, do I really want to pursue being a sustainable designer? Because that mm-hmm. kind of pins you with a lot of like, you should be doing this, you should be doing that. Yeah, and then also restrictions in design. Like another big thing for my collection was mending um, techniques. So I follow this upcycled collective on Facebook and it's all these old ladies who just like are making little crafts out of like little scrap fabrics or making quilts and they're very cute, but then I, and like very crafty, you know? And I sort of wanted to make that more hip if that makes sense um so one of my designs was a sweater that took inspiration from like darning um which normally we like think of like darning socks is like there's a hole in a sock and you kind of knit it back together um so instead of just a small mend it's like very in your face and it's a very contrasting color and it creates a new like texture to the sweater um and new dimensions so that was one way of doing it um Another thing was I took apart a lot of denim. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them had holes in them, so I just kind of mended it together, um, adding seams, but and not totally hiding it, but also not, I don't know. There's like kind of a balance between hiding it or embracing it fully. I don't know. Um, where it kind of becomes, it adds value yeah. to it. Like it has a past life, so. One of my projects, it had a hole because of like insects or mm-hmm. some kind of wood bug that liked to create these holes. So then it was like a hole, right? Very obviously like where I needed the mass. And he was like, you can't just ignore that. Mm-hmm. So I was, and eventually I was like, okay, fine. So then I had to like sort of work that into the design and that kind of stimulated this idea of embracing flaws I guess <laughs> yeah yeah um I guess another one of my pieces was um from my old Carhartt like men's worker shirt mm-hmm. and I had all these bleach stains or sun stains um on the sleeves and on the chest and that kind of created this cool color between the black and sort of this rusty um red and so I like really wanted to use this fabric or this fabric that Mm -hmm. was um I don't know it created like a new texture to it rather than just being a plain old t-shirt it's I don't know it had it had had something yeah But another thing um, that I think is problematic or is sort of a misunderstanding is that sustainability is expensive. Mm. Um, Like, that was one thing that I was sort of getting at with mine. Like, I got them from either thrift stores or just literally from, like, trash bags (laughs) at home. Yeah. Um, So it... Well, no. So there's, like, a couple different ways I'm trying to get at this. Um, I mean, like, a... Like, it doesn't have to be expensive. You can mm-hmm. wear, you can just 
wear the clothes you're wearing um, and keep wearing them. Like, you don't have to buy new stuff all the time um, or buy these expensive products that are out there. And then B, you sh- I don't think you should be paying $2 for a T-shirt. Like, that just mm-hmm. isn't right. Like, someone is still, even if it's just, like, bagging them, like, someone is still working to make this product and having it get to you. So you should be paying, like, a certain price. Or there should be, like, I don't know, like, a jeans jeans shouldn't be $20. Or, I don't know. <laughs> no, I understand. It's, like, yeah. I think the idea that we can go on our smartphone and open an app and shop for clothes mm-hmm. and then have them be next to nothing cost and have ne- next to nothing cost for it to be shipped across the world to us mm. gives this idea that it's okay. Yeah. Yeah, shipping is, like, a big thing, too, with, like, um, like you, if you just need anything, you can get it in two days. <laughs> you don't have to go to the store anymore. There's more and more services that are, like, accommodating this, like, convenience. Um, and it's really just making us lazy, lazy and, like, cheap. So I think that's something, like, we need to open our eyes to. I read um, a book called The End of Fashion uh, by Gazeki and Carminas, and they talked about how one of the ways that they see smartphones to kind of change the fashion industry is if by understanding buyer analytics what is being bought in higher proportion so they can change how much they buy of things. Do you think that that would be realistic, or is that kind of just further perpetuating the problem? Yeah, I think to begin with, like, there are a lot of companies that I'm seeing that are only producing limited stock. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one, like, good thing. Um, and it's sort of, like, if it's sold out, it's sold out. Like, I don't know. Yeah. It puts a cap on it. Like, you know, like, nothing is unlimited. And that's kind of where we're getting at with fast fashion, where it's cool for a minute and then you never wear it again or like I've made projects in the past and I'm just like what do I do with this now like I'm not going to wear it Mm -hmm. I don't think anyone else will wear it to be (laughs) honest um so yeah it's just even just this one project that I made as a student like that still builds up and then that's if that's the way I'm learning how to do things and then I take that to designing like at a company then it's just going to create the same problem and like create more stuff Here's Margaret Dunn, a junior fiber science major who recently interned at a bioplastics startup. Um, because we get to talk about fashion design and functional apparel design, but then we also talk about problems of sustainability and synthetic fibers or natural fibers and what effects they're having on the environment and how we can develop them, develop chemical techniques to treat natural fibers to make them better so that we can have you know, fibers that will biodegrade, but still have the great properties that our synthetic fibers have now. And I think that's a really important area to develop because, you know, textile industry is one of the, it's the second most polluting industry in the world. So, and everyone wears apparel, everyone has clothing. It affects every single person on the planet. 
but people don't often think of it as something that's a big issue that needs to be talked about, um, but it's actually really important. Yeah, I think what's really cool about fiber science is there's innately a lot more chemistry than people believe. Mm-hmm. And I myself, like, I, I didn't necessarily think about, like, the physical characteristics that make my sweater work as a sweater mm-hmm. or a cotton T-shirt work as a T-shirt. And so I think that's, that's something that I wish I had more access to, like, understanding how that works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of tricky, and it's a problem that you see in industry because for me, I want to work in, like, an athletic apparel company. Um, And there you have the material developers, which is the person I want to be, and then you have the fashion designers, and there's often a lot of conflict in communication um, because the designers, they're focused on the design and and look but then the material developers are like well actually there's chemistry and you know there's physical properties of these materials and that's not physically possible um so it's that that person who can do be in the middle and do the talking and understand the garments from the design aspect and then you know the physics and the chemistry of how the materials work So you recently did an internship on bioplastics. You want to talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So I was I did an internship at uh, Fab Lab Barcelona, which is a space that works in conjunction with an architecture university, and they work on digital fabrication, so CNC milling, three D printing, laser cutting, um, those kinds of technologies. And within that group, there is a Fab Textiles group, which is where I was working. Um, and I was working on a project for, for bioplastics, like you said, and I was developing a catalog of different materials that you can make super easily. Anyone could make them. So if you're trying to do rapid prototyping of a project, you, you know, get out your pot and you mix your ingredients together, (laughs) cast them out and you have plastic and then it, it'll biodegrade or you can reheat it or remelt. You can make another prototype, um, which is really great method of prototyping. Um, So I was working with mainly three different base recipes, a gelatin-based bioplastic, an agar-based bioplastic, and cornstarch-based bioplastic. Um, And so the gelatin bioplastic is, I ended up using that same recipe for my um, CFC design. and that one's kind of weird because it's made of gelatin. It's, it's like making jello, <laughs> really, <laughs> um, which is kind of weird, and it makes it seem like fake science sometimes. Um, but it's also great because if it's like a food, it's biodegradable. And one of the projects I made in the summer when I was home over Christmas, it was growing mold, which, I mean, I live in a very humid environment, so everything grows mold. But... To me, only six months later, it's already starting to biodegrade, which is cool if you're thinking about the future of fashion. Right now, we're in this fast fashion era, and if we can't change that, we need to embrace it and change our fashion to, to work with fast fashion. So if you know companies like Zara bring in clothes every six weeks, new styles to keep up with the you know crazy trends that move so quickly, if you can have a garment that can biodegrade six months later, 
that's great because you can do your shopping every two months, always be on trend, and then not have to worry about, is that going to a landfill? Is that going to sit there for eternity, but I wore it to one party? Mm-hmm. So if we're going to stay in that method of consumerism, always buying new clothes, then, you know, these bioplastics and these bio-based, you know, polymer materials could be the future of what we make our clothes out of. Um, but, I mean, for me, that's not really what I want. I want us to step back away from the consumerism and go into a slow fashion and using your more conventional natural materials, the cotton, silk, wool, and then creating products that are going to last your lifetime. But I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> you mentioned the, the gelatin-based bioplastic. Mm-hmm. So how do you set that to make it so it's not jello? Like I'm envisioning <laughs> people wearing a jello jacket and I'm curious how that actually turns into something you can wear. Um I don't know if it's something you can really wear right now. Um but the basic recipe for what I make is it's gelatin powder, uh glycerin and water and you heat them and mix them. Cast it out on a thin sheet of glass or plastic um, and then you let it dry and it will dry to depending how much um, glycerin which is the plasticizer how much of that you add it can be really squishy and jello like or it can be quite um, brittle Um, so it depends on how you mix those ratios and that was what I was working on adding different additives different amounts of plasticizer um, so that people can see this source book and touch the samples and see this is a range of materials I can make with the same base ingredients. Um, yeah, so the gelatin, I don't think that's really going to be the future. The agar, I think, is more interesting, and that's a, an algae-based um, material. And there's a startup in based out of Brooklyn that's making fibers from, from an algae base. Um, and I'm sure that's all very top secret, so I don't know what their actual <laughs> technology is. Um, but it seems like they have a promising future, and that could be something that's on the market in the future. Um, so things along those lines could be viable for, for a clothing production. Yeah, I can kind of envision, like, I know cotton takes a large amount of water and pesticides to produce, mm-hmm. so from my understanding of how quickly algae can manifest in a small amount of area, right, it wouldn't require as many resources as cotton or mm-hmm. even like a hemp-based material to produce. Yeah. yeah, I mean, hemp is better. Hemp uses a lot less water than cotton, but, but algae is really, that could be a great way to go. Um, they just need to get the, the processing down to yeah. to make it look good. I mean, I've seen online their initial prototypes and they were making yarns that were, I don't know, half a centimeter in diameter, which is very large. Yeah. Um, and they were doing just like basic uh, like, like hand knitting um, with that. But if you can get it down to micro, whatever, micron diameter fibers, something that you can actually weave and have it feel like a, like a regular textile, then that could be cool. Um, yeah. But then it, it's also these issues of you have to put a textile finish on it. If it's 
biodegradable. Do you really want it to start growing mold in six months? Or, you, yeah. you know, when you go out in the rain, is it going to dissolve? <laughs> you know, you don't want that. <laughs> so then you have to add chemicals on that. And where do you get those chemical finishes from? How do you make those sustainable, all that green chemistry stuff um, on top of that? So it, it's complicated. But, wow. Uh, Who knew? Yeah. A little algae, a little mold. Fast fashion is extremely damaging to the environment, um, and I don't see that people are willing to change that. I think we've reached the standard of living. You know, we can't go back to the 1920s where you owned one dress and you wore that for five years. No one's gonna, no one's gonna accept that in the society that we're in right now. So. I think it, it's that consumerism. And people are saying that millennials are interested in sustainability and they're more willing to pay more for a shirt made from organic cotton. But I don't see that enough for it to be a significant change and to, to take back the damage that we've caused. Like, there's, there's so many pounds of synthetic fiber garments just sitting in landfill and the the microfibers that are in the ocean it's too late to get those out they're already in there because because we keep making more and we don't dispose of it properly Listen to Livia Kalegor, a sophomore fashion management major, speak to the sustainability framework in the fashion industry and the role that sustainability plays in the corporate network. To what responsibility is sustainability a buzzword in mm-hmm. business? Have, do you think that it's more of a way to attract customers or is this something that they're actually interested in implementing? Um, I think that it's important to investigate the supply chain um, underlying a business's, you know, marketing slogans. Um, I think most fast fashion companies are inherently just unsustainable and hypocritical um, in their marketing messages. Um, I do believe that all these companies that, you know, are really founded upon pushing consumer consumption and mass production of trends that, you know, disappear within a week. um, I think those companies are using sustainability um, to attract consumers. And I really believe there's no way for them to shift um, to shift their practices unless they truly um, like reform their supply chain and production process. But with that said, I think in the past decade, there have been so many new niche companies um, that really do um, commit themselves to sustainable practices. Everlane, for example, um, which targets our consumer demographic. Um, on their website and in stores, um, they show the environmental footprint of each piece produced, and they show exactly um, where the garment was made, in which um, in which factory, in what part of the world, and all the hands that were involved in producing it. And interestingly, um, products are often out of stock if you go on their website, um, which shows that, in my eyes at least, their production process is in- inherently sustainable because they're limiting production and offering fewer higher quality pieces for 
actually fairly reasonable prices because they're eliminating the costs of in-store retail and um, you know a lot of other branding that fast fashion companies use. Mm-hmm. And I think that we as consumers need to change our mentality around clothing. You know, it's kind of crazy to me that a shirt or even a little slip dress at H&M you can buy could be the same price as a latte, which says something pretty problematic about (laughs) the price of food and the price of clothing and everything that goes into both of them. But I think we need to change our um, understanding of the purpose of clothing. We need to respect it as an innovative art form and we need to invest in fewer, um, higher quality pieces, which could be thrifted if, you know, you have financial constraints. But especially on a college campus, social media um, pressure and um, social pressure, I think, really encourage consumers to treat fashion as something disposable, as something that can be worn a handful of times um, before it, it starts to be taboo in your closet. Yeah. I think Emma Watson was one of mm-hmm. the women who started saying, like, if you're thinking about purchasing something new, will you wear it 30 times? Mm-hmm. And when I think about my closet, there are a couple things where I'm like, yeah, I've definitely done that 30 times. But there's also something that maybe I've never worn before. What is one thing you wish more people knew about the fashion industry and its ties to environmental issues? Mm-hmm. Um, I wish consumers knew how much power they had in changing the industry. Um, you know, I think so many of us distance ourselves from the truth that we are a bit aware of in the face of social pressure, in the face of, you know, norms when it comes to dress and um, keeping up with trends. But, you know, the fashion industry is truly one of the most polluting in the world. It's number two after oil and gas, which is really, really wild. And, you know, there have been so many mass social movements towards in a more environmentally conscious mindset, you know, whether that be um, through changing the food industry or, you know, approaching even a vegan diet, for example, or um, doing more volunteer work when it comes to environmental initiatives. But fashion is really, really one of the most toxic. And I think that it's something we all have to change. Um, And really, these corporate companies can't function without us. Older generations, I think, even though they might be less aware of sustainability and fashion, and sustainability is a buzzword, um, are actually better at practicing sustainable consumption practices um, because they feel less of a pressure to keep up with trends. You know, our parents aren't keeping up with the latest trends and getting something new every time a new trend hits. That's just us. That's just college students and people in their 20s, you know, keeping up with whatever's happening out there in the industry. And I think we need to change our mindset. And that's why I think some of the truly most authentic sustainable sustainable companies that are the most successful are ones that are geared towards older generations. Um, Eileen Fisher, um, for example, is one of the most sustainable companies in the industry, and it targets um, middle-aged women. And interestingly, um, those women um, are attracted to Eileen Fisher not for its sustainable values, um, but because of the actual quality and comfort of the clothing. 
Um, similarly, Lafayette 148, a company I worked for for the past few years, um, has a more sustainable, vertically integrated business model. And um, their whole model is um, 12 years into the past and 12 years in the future, meaning that each of their pieces is um, innovative and trend nonconforming and could have been innovative and one of a kind 12 years ago or 12 years in the future. And it's supposed to last the duration of those 24 years. And it's slightly higher at a slightly higher price point. Um, and it's not trend conforming, which is why um, it's usually marketed towards middle-aged women. Um, so I think really the issue is kind of shifting the mindset of our generation, younger consumers. Thrifting has become not just a trend, but almost a slightly more normalized way of shopping um, in recent years. Um, and I think that technology, which is you know, one of the most modern, up-to-date drivers of fashion consumption has been really, really useful um, in driving um, and making, you know, thrifting more ubiquitous in the market, which is very paradoxical almost since it's using one of the most modern tools, um, like for direct-to-consumer shopping um, to really get old recycled pieces to consumers. Um, There's so many websites like Depop or Grailed, um, or the real real that encourage um, you know recycling and reusing old pieces, and there's also something so timeless about those one of a kind pieces that people very very involved in the industry find value in. I think the wearable technology in- industry is also something very fascinating that we should start looking at. Um, I interned actually for the College of Engineering, I believe it was two or three summers ago. Um, It was in 2016. And I interned for a solar cell research team. It was actually really fascinating because it was a very engineering heavy team. um, And they had no interest in fashion or design or art whatsoever. And they were researching um, the potency of different solar cells. And I joined the team um, as a fashion student and helped design a prototype for a pair of glasses um, that have reading lights like on the sides. Because, um, you know, sometimes when you're in bed and you just don't want to get up and turn the lights on and it's dark out and you're lazy and you're wearing your glasses and you just wish you could push a button, there'd be a light on. So I designed a pair of these glasses powered by solar cells. And there has been so much innovation in the wearable tech industry recently. But I think one problem that we need to address is that often it's not very um, appealing to fashion consumers because all of it is very techy and more focused on innovation rather than marketability. And I think that it's so important for you know designers, um, engineers, and um, those working in mark those working in marketing or um, consumer research to collaborate and think about how to make these pieces accessible and appealing to fashion consumers. Yeah, whoa, solar cell. Mm -hmm. Maybe like a rain jacket with solar cell so I can charge my phone when I'm walking around. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It truly does break my heart that fashion is so often perceived as, as you said, a plastic art form. it's seen as disposable, which is why I think there are so many assumptions often made about those pursuing fashion. Um, people don't see it as an art form anymore. They see it as clothing that you wear and throw away.
Thank you for listening to State of the Pod. You've been listening to the Ho Pollution episode of our very first season. If you are interested in staying in touch with all of the things we do on campus, you can follow us on social media. We're on Instagram as well as Facebook. And feel free to email our email, stateofthepod at gmail.com with any comments, questions. We'd love to hear from you. This episode was produced by me, Bailey Ouellette, and many thanks go out to our advisor, Mark Savari, of the Investigative Bio Department. <laughs>